0: What's up, ballers? <laughs> That's not the show. We all we on sorry, table sorry. for two. Excuse me. Uh, we'd like a table for two, please. <laughs> oh, wait, monsieur. Right away, this way.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um, the reception was good for, for the first episode. We didn't. We actually haven't had the iTunes link yet. It's going to be improved by tomorrow, I expect. So you're not doing your job? But we, we actually surpassed the 500 barely that we I set out. And so here we are with the second episode. There were enough interest in, in hearing us talk. Yeah, I don't know why, but people... I, I mean, I love the sound of my own
0: voice, but I guess other people also have find my sultry tones, you know, enlightening. Shouts to everyone who,
1: like, liked uh, either of our tweets
0: when we uh, tweeted out the episode, and... Uh, yeah, you're all awesome. Except for that one guy, Andy...
1: What was it? Peters? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out he's not going to damn secure this Saturday. Um, no. I think... Negative shout-out to you. I think that's a huge thing. Um... A lot of places are, are having MCQs, but face-to-face games, having their very first one this Saturday. I'm looking at the, to play it, and... Um, oh, you're going to play it. Not. Don't don't pretend.
0: Otherwise, if you're not playing it, this is just an advertisement. You, you have to actually play. <laughs> you have to actually play. And I'm, I'm actually a little bit excited. I'm not even playing. I'm not allowed to play. I actually kind of wish I was. I maybe would play, but there's like... It, it, it's just like the fact that the old-school PTQs, people would come in. You'd see all the old grinders. Everybody would just be there, and now, like that's kind of back so I actually am going to just planning to just go and maybe bird, bird some matches show up maybe around when the top eight starts see some old friends I haven't seen for years because I, it was never worth it for me to go and check out a PPTQ right and at an RPTQ it was only the people who had qualified who I would see so it would be like usually more active people rather than people who just come out of the woodwork for, for this one event and, you know, people travel, let's say, from Toronto to, to play or whatever. Or, or let's say, maybe even as far as Kingston, where you a football-throwing enthusiast,
1: you know? <laughs> but, uh, unfortunately, he's not coming down. So, I, I mentioned that at the end of the last episode. It would be interesting to see how I feel about the whole gathering. But if people from Kingston, one of the guys I look forward to, to seeing isn't coming, I, I hope some sickos that we know from Toronto, from other people, are, are coming down to play this event. And, uh, but, but back in the day, in, in its prime, when we were playing, I think they were just barely hitting a, over 100 people, right? And some of them were just barely. Whereas we heard about Americans having to grind some from some cities, like, nine rounds. And we're, like, we were complaining about, like, well, I was, like, 7-8 because it's like, okay, only one person wins. I think, I think it was almost always more than 100 people. At least, I think when I first, first started playing,
0: it was under 100. But shortly, it was almost always... It was never 200. No, not not in Montreal. I think, I think maybe there was one two hundred person one in Montreal. Like, I, th- I remember one time there was when Face to Face had their first PTQ, that it was actually bigger than the GP that was happening at the same time in Auckland, New Zealand.
1: <laughs> oh yeah,
0: it was like three hundred people or something. You know, it, that one was big. But Toronto, I know, has always had, or at least in the last while, has had really big PTQs. Back when I would play, they they they, they were bigger than Montreal, but they still weren't that big. They're like. 160 people or something Actually, the PTQI-1 was in London, Ontario Which was a 10-hour drive altogether Shouldn't have been quite so long But our navigators were less competent than, than they should have been And we somehow ended up, like, north of Ottawa For those of you who know Canadian geography You know that that's quite out of the way And those of you who don't, that's quite out of the way <laughs> And But it worked out in the end But that one, I think, was like yeah, I think that was, it was still more than 100 people, but like 120 or something. I remember thinking that it was
1: relatively small. And you won with Power Master Ascension, probably a card that you hold dear to your heart even to this day, I imagine? Well, now it sucks. Everybody's just doing it unfairly. I was just, I was an honest
0: man, just casting my Preordains and Ponders and Jitaxian probes, you know, the good old-fashioned way. Yes, all those cards were legal and standard. Do you know what else was? Lightning Bolt, Burst Lightning. Pyromancy Ascension it was, it was delightful It just would wow. You know Cast all these cantrips And set up an Ascension And then You know Suddenly all your, your cards Just give you so much value And you basically Just play a control It What game. was
1: consensus Best deck at that time? Splinter Twin Basically was oh. standard
0: legal Okay yeah Not, okay. not even modern no. legal anymore <laughs> Okay. It was and Jace, and Stoneforge just been banned. It was a pretty powerful standard for me. <laughs> yeah, to be able to play ponder for your day and not be considered the consensus <laughs> best deck at standard. Yeah, I mean, I remember in the top eight I played against someone playing Birthing Pod, another <laughs> deck that's banned in and, and modern, you know. So, <laughs> good
1: times. Good times, good times. Now we're playing... Like one one haste guys again, <laughs> and uh, yeah, why why are you hating on the Firebrand, Kyt <laughs> heading into this weekend and, and like the the main decks? I think the the pillars, as you will people say, it's like mono red, nexus, um, Su- esper control, esper heroes. I think those are the the three most talked about decks. If I'm not well, I saying. think the
0: the Bant deck from the Esper deck. Been, yeah, right. It's been you know with Oketra, the the new new you know uh new Scarab God people have been calling it. Uh, I think that's a little, maybe a little bit far, but it's it's got some. It's better, I think, than, than it looked from the outside. You know, thought it was just going to be a limited all-star, but it does more than just ruin games. A
1: limited, you know. How, did you get a chance to play much like, before because um, the the MC the Mythic Championship was modern. So what about standard? Were you playing much before? uh... I was actively trying to look at the spoilers for the set and not think about standard. It's hard
0: because (laughs) you look at these cards and you just think, okay, this is going to be used in this way. That's my normal process. But because this was like a pre-release MC, I was trying to avoid my thoughts of Constructed to not taint because only limited mattered, not even modern, right? You couldn't use the cards in modern. So I wanted to make sure I just viewed cards as limited. It's kind of like a horse putting on the blinders, you know. Uh, It allowed me to focus in a bit more. Uh, so now now I have to take off those blinders and look at look at standard and it's definitely a whole new new world. There's a lot of a lot of big players in standard it looks like and things are shaking up and I don't think we're really all the way to where where the format's going to land. I think there's still a lot more going on. I've seen some some sweet planeswalker decks, you know. There's I've even seen uh Neoform plus uh, the birthing pod, you know, Simic legend uh, decks that trying to grind up creatures for value all the way along the chain. You know, there's there's obviously the Salt-Eye decks that you, you'd always expect. There's some black-green decks that, you know, use various things for value. All, all sorts of people have messaged me all, all kinds of sweet brews, and I've been just looking at things, and it's kind of overwhelming, but it's also awesome because one of the things I really love about Magic is unexplored formats. And this format's a little bit explored, but it feels like... The pros haven't really put their noses to the grindstone and with magic online like not being as used compared to arena for standard it feels like you don't you don't get the output of of like people generating these like format defining decks as much we're just kind of iterating from the decks that existed in previous standard and moving them forward rather than coming up with something completely new the vant deck is the kind of the closest thing to to something brand new and People who played it seem to get really rewarded. The Star City, so
1: right. Um, hey, did, did you play as someone? Yeah, you know, obviously, who's not afraid to play degenerate strategies. Were, were you playing the Nexus deck or against it? Like I played it against it for the for the first time last night. Lost, lost to the new version of it. Uh, play testing against it, and now I can see why. I- <laughs> Why people are complaining about that deck cuz you after a certain turn you're just sitting there seeing if they if they fizzle or not. Um.
0: Oh yeah, I played against it plenty. Uh, my rule is usually like
1: when they have two turns
0: on the stack and they have like a search for skanta and and will lose reclamation, I'll just I usually scoop or I'll ask them what their win condition is if I'm playing in real life, you know. Uh, it's definitely not a pleasant deck to play against, especially if you're just sitting there, but you have to remember you always have the option to just concede to save your time. A lot of people don't like doing that because you feel like you're missing out on some equity that they fizzle. But there becomes a point where there's more of a chance that you just disappear from existence, you know. Like Thanos snaps you out than, than that they actually fizzle. So, especially now that they've added Tamiya to the deck, it increases their consistency a huge amount. Uh, and it, it makes some of the cards like discard spells that used to be effective. Tamiya shuts those down with, with her passive. Stuff like the Eldest Reborn that make people sacrifice things also shut down. So there's some value there. On the other hand, the three mana Teferi is a natural predator for the Nexus deck. It bounces Wilderness Reclamation, but also Teferi's passive means they can't cast spells at instant speed, which means they don't really get use out of their Nexus mana. Other than, you know, sacrificing blue memorials to draw cards or something.
1: But they have... A, what are their answers to that? There, oh yeah, their answer is the Blast, blast Zone or Blasting... Yeah, they've,
0: the they've, they've, they've blasted on the land, which is a, a big addition. And uh, Blink of an Eye and Talus Dismissal, which actually is their win condition. That's how they Because with that and Tamiyo, they can keep Tamiyo Minus to rebuy from the graveyard, and they can play it to bounce the Tamiyo to rebuy the Tamiyo, and effectively make a, a, a creature, while they're taking all the turns, in any size, and just bounce other things too, while they plus Tamiyo potentially. When they get to the point where their deck is just all four nexuses, Tamio Plus doesn't actually mill anything. So, yeah, that deck is is definitely strong. Uh, there are definitely ways to fight it, though, and I think, you know, the ag- aggressive red strategies is one way to attack it, and the 3 to ferry is another. But it's a real deck, and you should be prepared to play against it. Some decks, like uh, the Blue-Red Phoenix deck, just can never, never beat that deck. Though you, t- you were telling me that you actually didn't find that the Phoenix deck could beat any deck.
1: I don't, I don't know. I've played it in, in many formats, and I had to. I actually asked Andy Football Peter to, to make a set of videos uh, that will go up when when the show is up as well. Um, uh, playing it in a league, and he actually went 5-0 with it. And I have to, have to, can't wait to go home and watch those because I, I feel it, it's very reminiscent uh, to me. And I might be wrong. Like, uh, let's say, an infect like any synergy decks that were, if, if I'm just having the cantrip part of the deck and I'm, I'm lacking threats, I don't feel like I can win. And then even if I do have the threat part of the deck and I'm against like some, I guess, Esper control with like a lot of removal. I feel it's really hard to to get ahead and beat them and um, like sometimes I'm really excited I play Electromancer I think my hand can go off I can get some sort of tempo edge but they they always kill it and then I feel my hand is really bad so I have mean... you consider being luckier <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's uh, that's that's one of my top recommendations for people who have been trouble winning No but but in all seriousness I think it's a deck that is fine for certain metagames. like you know when mono blue was one of the better decks it was kind of a foil in, into that deck in some ways I think mono blue right now sadly is uh, <laughs> it's probably not not any good you've you know the, the both of your kind of prey of like Esper control let's say and uh, and the, the Nexus deck having blast zone to kill all your one drops it's pretty brutal uh, the fact that Esper now has the 3-mana Teferi, which can sneak in often underneath your counter wall and then prevents all your spells from really being effective while also bouncing your creature with a thread on it. with like It's, it's brutal. And uh, I think Salt Eye is just not as played anymore. And all, all that factors into making it kind of a nightmare to, to play mono Blue in that field. So unless, again, the meta shifts completely... Monoblue is a deck that I would I would I would sh- short the stock in in, in, in that. Uh, and what you ke- became known for? Hitting number one mythic. Yeah, I think I think I might still have been the person to hold number one mythic on Arena for the longest time. Uh, I did it. It was fun. And then it was at the point where I didn't need the invite that that season because the top eight got invited to uh, the mythic invitational, and so. People were starting to get to the point where they recognized my name and knew that I was streaming, so they would stream snipe me. And I didn't want to give an edge to the unethical players who do that versus the people who just wouldn't snipe, whether you know they didn't right. know that I was who I was, or they were they, they felt it was immoral to do so. And so I stopped kind of streaming the last last little while. But before that, I'd I kind of fallen a little bit. Anyways, I think I got to I was like
1: ninetieth or something. Before I, I, stopped, but it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Um, well, let's go to Mono Red because it won the Star City Games. But as as other people have commented, we, we've seen the first SCG tournament, uh, the winner. Sometimes it's 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 a very not unsurprisingly an aggressive deck. Like I remember Red White Heroic winning. And people thought, hey, maybe it's a thing. But uh, over time, it, it wasn't the, the tier one deck anymore. I think. Right. Was- one of the,
0: the things is that is almost always good in, in these new formats that people are still adjusting and a lot of people are coming with these mid range decks but they're not fully tuned, right? Mm-hmm. They don't they don't have the right set of answers, they don't have the right mix of cards, you know, they have four of this card and three of another one when really they should have two, two and three of another card or something that they haven't figured that out yet you just look, let's say, at in, in modern at the arc, like Phoenix decks, right? You can see how much they've changed from the early GPs where they were top 8 versus how they look now. You know, they would have gut shots, not surgicals. They, they wouldn't have Pyromancer's Ascension. All these things are just, you know, how these mid-range decks often kind of get iterated over and over again and small improvements create huge, huge changes. Whereas the aggro decks often they're just playing the premier threats. Like a deck like Mono Red you're playing one color, you don't have that many options at each spot in the curve, you know. The Ashido Pyromancer is not an amazing magic card, but you don't really have that many choices, right? It's the best that you've got, and you need to play a wizard so you can play Wizard's Lightning, and so on. So, a lot of the deck is just pre-made for you. How many, how many cards really changed in the main deck of Mono Red compared to how it was before? Maybe people are playing Chandra instead of uh, Frenzy. Maybe they're playing sideboard uh, Tibalt or something, right? But Really, the deck's about the same, and it's just got it. You know, it's very good at asking questions. Do you have it? And often people wouldn't have the right answer. There are a lot of cards that have been added to the format can, that can hurt Mono-Red. Enter the God Eternals. That card's a beating four life and a four-four, yeah. and their and their creature's dead. Like, yeah. what? What just happened? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> not to mention if they can fuel search for a they're gra- with their graveyard getting milled or something. You know, they get even more value that way. It's, uh, you know, Oath of Kaya, do three damage for that, game three. That's that's a big game. And being able to kill a Chain Whirler and for value is, is huge. So if people adjust their decks more and more like that, then Mono Red is going to get pushed out until, again, these control decks kind of start tuning themselves more for the mirrors, in which case then Mono Red can sneak back in because they lose respect for it, right, without having enough cheap removal and life gain. That's that's kind of the idea, to have a little bit of a rock, paper, scissors, but on a, a much higher scale, where there's, you know, 10 different decks or something that can exist, and they all they all have good matchups and bad matchups, and they can all be tuned to be favorable against other decks and so on. Uh, so you definitely do see the, the aggressive decks thrive, let's say, week one, week two of a, of a format. And... Also, you see the decks that don't require that many new cards often thrive because there is a financial aspect to Magic that, especially when a set's just brand new, it's people don't want to spend a lot of money getting all the new cards. And also, sometimes they're just actually hard to get. You know, I don't know at Star City how card availability is. You, if you can just go up to the vendor and they have everything, but sometimes I know people have said that, oh, I would have played a fourth copy of this, but I could only find three or something, and. I've been there, you know, now I'm at a spot where I, I'm financially secure, I can afford to buy whatever cards for a deck I need unless I'm going to a vintage tournament, in which case it's starting <laughs> maybe to be a little iffy but uh, for for anything besides that, I can, you know, even a legacy tournament, I was missing an Underground Sea and I, I went into the, I knew, I knew that worse, I was going to try and borrow one from a friend but if I couldn't get it, I could just go to a vendor and buy an Underground Sea even though it's expensive, I can afford that but I understand that I, a lot of people can. I didn't, wasn't always able to, and that does affect the metagame, especially at the beginning, as people slowly build up a deck. Um, I think.
1: I don't know. It makes me think of the is it Phoenix deck that ended up winning, the uh, Moto PTQ, and uh, LSV was tweeting out how you know how did it win? It only has two new cards, and maybe no one played Nexus because uh, it couldn't beat Nexus before Nexus got new tools. How did it possibly win? And Well, maybe on Magic Online, people don't play (laughs) Nexus
0: as much because you actually have it's your own clock that's ticking, and you have to just keep going and going. It's a lot of a lot of the combo decks are not really functional Magic Online because of that. I know that, for instance, when Malira, Kitchen Finks, and the Sacrifice Outlet was a was a combo. You know, in real life, you say I go to five hundred billion life, and on Magic Online, you you go to like a a thousand life, and then you have five minutes left in your clock.
1: (laughs) Right. So it's.
0: A little bit, a little bit different there, uh, and maybe that makes the metagame shift away from Nexus a little bit, where the Phoenix deck could thrive. I know at the the Mythic Championship in Cleveland, uh, I was I was playing the, the the Phoenix deck, and it was solid, and I felt it was pretty good when I played against the Fair decks. But when I played against Nexus decks, even just Reclamation decks, also that were just going so over the top of what I was doing that it was very difficult to win and even having, you know, Negates and Spellpierces Afterboard wasn't enough. So, I think that these other decks have gained something, but again, they're not fully tuned to the point where maybe the Phoenix deck is still pre-tuned because it hasn't added anything, that in some ways is an advantage, and people can can cut through a field that isn't necessarily prepared for that, you know. Right. Going, going one previous level, like... Right, the rules of poker is like level 0, if everybody's at level 0, you want to be on level 1. And then if everybody's on level 1, though, you want to be on level 2, which is... Then if you're at level 2, level 3 is effectively level 0, right? So it's there's a little bit of a leveling game there. And it's it's kind of cool to see someone kind of play a deck that's basically just been around in standard for a long time, and people have kind of been ignoring and just crushing to get an invite to the Mythic Championships. I want to go back to to Mono Red?
1: Uh, no, no more with Mono Red. That's enough. <laughs> because you played it. Yeah. Oh and, yeah. Uh, um, and uh, and over dinner we you talked about how you you played eighteen lands, seventeen, 17 lands actually. 17 lands. It's, but that's best of one,
0: and so in arena there's that hand smoothing algorithm for best of one. The exact details aren't completely known, but basically, the program draws two opening hands for you, and a percentage of the time gives you the better one in terms of lands. I didn't animations. even know that. Yeah. So you can you can basically, you know, play fewer lands in your decks often, like or, or, or colored sources. Colored sources actually doesn't really look at your colored bana- mix, it just looks at total number of lands, total number of spells. So you can usually play one fewer land, or in this case, you know, three fewer lands, because <laughs> you're g- generally going to have an opening hand with with lands in it compared to zero lands in it, which is okay, one of the risks right, if right. you decrease your land count. Uh, so I wouldn't recommend 17 lands if you're if you're playing paper magic, <laughs> but you know, not 20 lands is the norm. I think I could look at 19 if you're not playing the full four four drops in your deck, because you know, light up the stage does find you more lands and the way mono red works is that a lot of your cards can trade one for one with your opponent's cards and so if you're stuck on three lands you can just keep making trades until you finally draw that fourth line and slam the frenzy it's
1: much better than having frenzy and then two lands on top because that's often the way you lose good point um i, th- I think you, you you had mentioned it is actually you had mentioned like because it's mono red there's not that many choices but because um in this, we're early in the format, and and people are still figuring it out. And and there's there's like a battle for the four slot, and then reading, um, seeing like sort of three different, ish like four cards apart decks in, in the SEG top four is interesting. And having Patrick Sullivan talk to some of the some of the people who did finish, and having different philosophies for the mirror was different
0: philosophies of fire. You yeah, say. yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, red, the
0: the spot in red that has been interesting, you know. For typically for the past few years, in fact, not just this format, is the 4-drop spot, right? There was always... rekindling Phoenix has been around, it feels like, forever. There's been Hazaret there's been Chandra. Be, now there's a new Chandra, and there's Experimental Frenzy, and there's still Phoenix. So, which ones do you play? See, everybody basically has agreed that Phoenix is not the one to play in your main deck. But, they play in the sideboard. There have been some of these big red decks that have been playing Phoenix main, uh, but... Experimental Frenzy was the conclusion, at least for the Mythic Invitational, that I, my, my group of testing, which was me and Andre Strasky as well as the, the che, his Czech buddies, you know, uh, KK and uh, Stan Sivka, and I think Ivan Flock did some, some work back there at stage as well. But uh, Experimental Frenzy was, was the best card. It was your get-out-of-jail-free fr- card in many ways, because in games where things were going poorly... It was often like, well, if I draw Frenzy, I'm back in it. If I draw Frenzy, I'm back in it. If I draw Frenzy, I can maybe win. If I draw Frenzy, it could be close. If I draw Frenzy this turn, I'm not dead, you know? And then, okay, then you're dead. But it, it was just, you know, it, it does not, doesn't line up great against Mortify, specifically, and cards like Absorb too, because it's a four-mana sorcery's threat, gets answered... Like for less mana that by the control decks, right? And you almost always want to trade your cards up on mana with mono red. You want Red. You want Shock to kill a 2-drop. You want Lightning Strike to kill a 3-drop. And you want Chain Whirler to maybe give you card advantage or kill something and then trade for another spell from them. You know, your Chandra gives you a card and gets Vraska's Contempted. So it, it kind of balances out there. It's, I think it's really important with aggro decks to, re, to realize that you want to get mana and mana advantage because that's how you get an, how you win over these control decks. You're playing one and two mana spells and they're playing three and four mana spells. And so you can cast more of yours. But if you're trading equally on mana, the control decks gonna usually pull ahead with more powerful cards.
1: I'm stumped because I, I think did you play four with seventeen lands? Oh yeah, four experimental <laughs> frenzy. In the main, right? Yeah, In the one, main. Best, yeah. best of one. Um, oh yeah. I mean, Andre, Andre
0: and Squad, they were like, "Oh, let's play 18 lands." I'm like, "No, I refuse 17." And then, you know, I, I, I was like, "Look, I've been playing 16 and loving it, okay? But I'll split the difference with you, and play 17." And and they finally agreed, and uh, I think it was right. I think I think I was flooding out a lot more because at that time I was playing a lot of standard on arena, on ladder, and. I did try out various numbers of lands and you don't really get enough data because even with a lot of matches It's not enough matches, but it was just the way it felt It felt that 18 was a bit a little bit too much 19 was definitely too much and 17 was maybe
1: the sweet spot Okay, I'm torn just because I think You made good points. I think like kept like left untouched. I felt like Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like frenzy's upside is higher and Oh yeah, Sometimes, frenzy is absurd. If you want, yeah. if
0: you want to see the upside, there's a clip from <laughs> Canister, who just he's playing in his show, and he just, he's just completely dead on board. But he managed, he has a frenzy, and he just manages to go off with two steamkins and just cast like twelve cards in a row and do like forty damage. It's just completely absurd, and it's just a card that can get you out of scenarios. It can draw you ten cards in one turn, right? Especially with Steamkin, you can really, really go deep because you, this cards get you mana, which gets you, and then you can keep casting more and more cards. And you know, light up the stages can dig you past land blots and stuff. It's it's really the card that if you have in play for you know two or three turns, you're going to win unless you're at three life in the mirror and then they draw a burn spell or something. But it's it is, however, one of the easier cards to answer in the in the format. Compared to Led Chandra, which requires a Fraska's a contempt instead of a mortify. And that's why I think people are moving towards Chandra in some ways, because in the Esper matchups, it is it is slightly better. But I think I think I would I would recommend Frenzy. I think yeah. it's madness to to really turn down the Frenzy. I, I love it so much.
1: What what do you think about uh... I know, I know you have to grind it or, or play this matchup, but uh, like the the whole debate of lava Coil being good in the mirror or, or uh, risk factor.
0: Well, I hate the card risk factor. I'm going to say that right now. I hate I hate brow beat, I hate all those cards that let your opponent make the best choice. Whenever I draw risk factor, my opponent's at 16 or something. And I'm like risk factor like. I go to 12, I'm like, all right, discard land, Risk Factor. They're like, I'm at 8 now. I'm like, all right, your turn. And then, you know, I I have maybe a lightning strike in hand or something, and then they just kill me. But, you know, whereas if, like, you you have a Frenzy or a Chandra or something, suddenly you're actually doing something. You know, your card does something if your opponent has a life total, whereas Risk Factor is a card that only works if you've been able to bring your opponent low on life. So I think it is a good sideboard card for that reason. One thing to be careful of, though, is if Esper Control decks are, are starting to play more Narsets, that, that does shut down you from drawing cards from the Risk Factor, so they can just let you draw. And that's definitely zero. something... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, zero if it's on your turn. If it's on, on their turn, you get to draw one. Okay. But still Still. You know, if they have a Teferi in play, it's going to be on your turn, and they'll, they'll let you draw zero, I'll tell you that. But Frenzy is just... I think is just the highest upside card and for that slot in your deck, that's what I feel that you want.
1: What about the lava coil in the, in the mirror? Do you think it's like a game that comes down to tree? It is interesting.
0: So I don't have really not played sideboarded games with Mono Red. I right. my, my experience <laughs> with Mono Red was almost all playing best <laughs> of one. Because that deck was busted at best of one. It was it was the best it was I think Esper was probably the best deck, but Mono Red was was second and just partly because of the, the algorithm getting you smoother smoother draws, but it was so good. And sideboarding with wanna Red definitely changes things, like the fact that you get to cut a lot of your one-toughness creatures, so chain, you can play around Chain more. I've seen... I, I think that I would bring in Lava Coil, uh, if you expect people to have Phoenix. It's right. a great a great clean answer to a Phoenix. Sometimes you can, you know, Lightning Strike a Phoenix untapped Chain Whirler, and that was the classic answer, but I think the matchup is often comes down to frenzy. If you have if you both have frenzy, then you're both kinda of going crazy. If one of you has frenzy and the other doesn't, the person without frenzy has to kill you quickly. But if you, you do need to answer threats on the way up to frenzy and sometimes the match does get grindy, like a, you know, if you play those matchups and you draw a risk factor, a lot of the time you just traded resources back and forth and your opponent is high on life and you know, after you cast the risk fi- factor they're even feeling higher in life, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I would I would board in Lava Coil there, but it's it's hard to go against Patrick Sullivan, the the red deck master himself. His his advice to, to not bring in right. I think he might not even want it in the sideboard at all, right? <laughs> I don't know. I think certainly when there's no tempest gins to kill, you don't need maybe don't need lava coil as much
1: great okay let's i want to talk about something a topic that that uh i don't know why it came up but uh i mean i used to do that a lot known to looking at my old really old messages when i first started Mad deprived and, and you guys used to make fun of me asking jerry t for a decklist all the time or, or you, my you stopped doing that <laughs> mike told me just asked him for a deck uh, yes. list the other day i, I, I love tagging mike <laughs> i think um people would think oh man People think I'm like ultra serious, like D roots like maybe you should uh, be tweet. I think you should be tweeting Edgar, don't know why, maybe don't know how close of a relationship I have with Mike. Um, but uh, usually I'll ask these people all these questions and sometimes, this is Edgar Magalhaes, the
0: hottest yeah, yeah. Canadian Magic
1: player. <laughs> According to one of my tweets. Yeah. I
0: have that I have that screenshot <laughs> saved in my phone. I just I, I made sure to show it to KYT the, today at dinner after, after, you know, obviously my recent top eight. <laughs> Nothing against Edgar, of course. Just, just a little, little funny ribbing at KYT because I'm like, what is this? Hottest Canadian Magic player, Edgar? Edgar? It's like, well, he top eight of the SCG this weekend. It's like, yeah, yeah he did. He did. <laughs> he did it again. He did. Yeah, he, wow. ha, he has... I have actually been pretty impressed watching the Canadians crushing the SEG
1: circuit. Yeah, they're top three. I, yeah, I, I, would, I would, I
0: would, I would, I basically never played them myself, but it was. I think I played in like three SCGs. One team one and a couple individuals, and came first in one SCG classic, and came like t- probably tied for last in, in the individual one, and we came fifth on for teams it was, it was with John Stern and. Uh, uh, Josh Frankel. It was, it was, it was quite, a, quite a fun squad, but they seemed like cool events, but I haven't played any since they moved over to the two-day structure. But it has been cool to see, you know, people driving down and, and really taking a shot at it because I always really thought of it as a tournament series for Americans.
1: Yeah, yeah. Shout out to, uh, I think, Matthew Dilks. I don't know if he's still number one, um, but back back to what I was trying to say was I would approach these people and... and um, and also, I wouldn't value pros, the, the opinion of pros, way more than, than myself. Even though I played a said matchup, I didn't feel good about a certain card. I thought it was bad, but I see an updated deck list from a pro. It still has that card, and I'd still bring it to a tournament. And maybe, like, they were right all along, and I was just probably playing it bad through my play testing. but I would regret not following my instincts. And I feel like, of course, you being on the NPL, but even before that, when, when, you know, in the eyes of a lot of Canadian players,
0: Only Canadians?
1: When you were crushing Canadian GPs and and after winning the PTA, I I expect a lot of people come up to you and ask you questions. And it's just funny because I I imagine for some decks, like people have played possibly hundreds, if not thousands of matches. And they're asking you and you probably just say one thing and it would change what they thought. They wouldn't make it 180.
0: Well, okay, so a few few things on this point. One is the the point one thing that I really I learned that was extremely valuable in my journey through competitive magic was to trust myself and my own instincts. That, to to believe that, you know, you you see the stuff online and you think these guys are all experts and often often they are. They're all, they are, a lot of them are and but the thing is if you are actually trying to get better and you have a good process and you're putting in the work and the in the games you should trust your yourself. You should trust your process and your results. And even if it goes against something that somebody has said in an article, because you you don't know what actually went behind that article, which is kind of the point you're bringing. That so, sometimes people message me, "Hey yeah. Alex, yeah, here's a stack I've been playing. I, I played a thousand matches with it. Uh, have, have you played with it at all?" I'm like, two games. It's, what do you what do you what do you think? Just this. Just, oh, I'm gonna I'm, I think I think you're right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna change that. And it's like, okay, like. I I, I, ha- I am very skilled at Magic. I have a lot of games of playing Magic in general right, behind right. my belt. So I do think my, like, ten games are more valuable than your ten games Correct. or whatever, you, you for do. the most part. Right. But are my ten games more valuable than your thousand? Probably not, you know. I think there's there is a point where you do have to decide that you, you put in all this, these thousand games for a reason, right? You should know what you're doing with this deck. It's like for this episode a bunch of people are like hey Alex what do you think about this and that in Tron it's like okay I'll give you an opinion but you have to take into account that I played 11 rounds with Tron you know 9 rounds in Swiss at the Pro Tour or Mythic Championship (laughs) then 2 in the top 8 you know so for a total of of somewhere in the range of like 25 games with Tron that's my lifetime experience with Tron so I have you know a good theoretical understanding of magic and a reasonable understanding of modern the format And Tron's not that complex of a deck to understand But, you know, a lot of people who are asking these questions Have played so much, so much more And have thought about these specific questions a lot And talked to other people about these questions a lot So, you know, you should take what I personally say with a grain of salt Basically, you should just close down this podcast right now I have nothing valuable to tell you But, no, I mean, uh, I think someone asked about the new Karn in Tron And it seems pretty sweet, actually I think finding mycothin's Lattice can kind of shut people down it's effectively a stony silence for the Mirror or other affinity decks like Hardened Scales. And being able to even find like uh, a. Uh, so there's a two mana artifact that you can tap to make anything into an artifact. Um, Liquid Metal Clothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you it. can even find that if you're low on mana. And that takes like two, maybe three sideboard slots. You probably can play like a fourth relic in your sideboard or something, you know. Uh, and having having a, the uh, ability to have that. I think the Tron sideboard slots are not that tight. There's some of them that are really important. Like, it's very important that you have removal spells uh, to be able to kill against, you know, humans and, like, hardened scales slash, uh, you know, having dismembered for the thing in the ice out of Phoenix. Having surgicals. That That, that stuff's important. But, you know, did we... I had two ghost quarters in my sideboard. Did I really need to have two more ghost quarters? Maybe not. You know, did I? <laughs> did I have to have like some of, some some of, some of the cards? Basically, are like not completely necessary, but just good. And you can you could probably fit two or three sideboard slots for free with and play Karn in the main. And I think it could be good. It is awkward that, you know, four mana doesn't actually you almost always hit four mana and seven or eight mana at the same time. So it is weird in that way. But if you look at it maybe like a ten drop, maybe it's okay. <laughs> I, I I suspect that it's it's probably not gonna gonna ultimately be that good though in, in, in Tron just the more I think about it it feels like the turn you get to a bunch of mana you do have to have something that really has a big impact on the board right away and that you know you need to put a lot more mana in for that card to have an
1: impact Green salt, though and uh, if people grind a thousand matches with it it, please let us know and and
0: you're crushing with it if you're winning 75% of your matches that's 750 matches 750 out of a thousand matches and then you hear me say no it's bad
1: don't just take it out of your deck please keep it in (laughs) Um, okay, we'll, we'll finish with this segment. Maybe we need your phone, but but let's break down the groups for, for uh, the MPL. All right. Well, there's there's four <laughs> groups. They're named after
0: Moxen. There's my group, Emerald. There's uh, there's Pearl. There's Sapphire, and there's Ruby. Okay. All right. So obviously, my group's the hardest. <laughs> Not just because it has me in it, but it also has seven other incredibly talented magic players. Uh, Pearl has eight incredibly talented magic players on it. Uh, Emerald has. Oh, sorry, I'm on Emerald. Sapphire has eight incredibly talented magic players on it. And then Ruby, I think, has either seven or eight incredibly talented magic players on it. I think eight are. But, yeah, every, everybody's great. This is the MPL. We're not. There's no. There's not really any slackers here, you know? Uh, I think.
1: If I had to pick winners from each group? Or maybe, like, maybe not necessarily winners. Maybe someone that's either overrated or underrated in, in each group. Okay. Up to you. Up to you. Okay, well. Uh, <laughs> you know I, all I, the groups I, off I, the top of your head? Pretty much, yeah. Okay.
0: I'm, a, I'm a professional K.Y.C. He hasn't taken out his phone. I, I want to look at them, too. Wanna, I don't, okay, know, I don't, I don't l- know the not I'll list. Let you see, but, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I looked at it once or something, so I know. <laughs> let's, let, let's, let's look it up. But in the meantime, I'll tell you that... Uh, You know, we we talked about Ben Stark being overrated, underrated last weekend Right, right Uh, I think that there are some players who definitely are better at constructed versus limited Uh, And We're we're, we're pulling this up We're we're, we're pulling it up (laughs) So, alright, we got We got one of these things Okay, divisions Okay, here we go Okay, here's Emerald, my division there's me and seven other no, <laughs> Seth Manfield, Martin Juza, Gregor Kowalski, Brad Nelson, Shoda Yasoka, Christian Hauck and Matthew Nass. So uh, you know the players who might not be as well known there, Gregor Kowalski and Christian Hauck, uh, they're both they're both fantastic. Uh, I have a lot of a lot of respect for Gregors he's probably one of the hardest working pros i know oh, okay. his one of the things is you know in in our group we will uh, will will talk about something and he'll say he'll, he'll he's the guy who posts his his list of some deck and okay. say i'm not really that sure about it though I, I only played about 10 leagues i'm like what you only played 10 <laughs> leagues because for him that's like yeah that's a very small amount of magic he he's just a workhorse and you know he's been really putting up results this past couple of years and he deserves it he's put in the work so uh, really happy for him and Christian Hauk. he's kind of in some ways a newcomer to the scene you know he had a he had a pretty good year last year I got to play him in a, in one match and he impressed me he was he's good wow. so
1: it's a it's a, a good squad like people I don't basically I have never really heard that much of so so it's really cool for, for you to tell me that yeah i mean you know Seth Brad
0: Juza Shota Everyone. and, and every, everybody knows them Math, Matt Nass he's 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 always been pretty successful you know and He's, he's the combo guy, so usually you're gonna you're gonna see him battling with some some sort of random combo deck. But he's he's got some chops, you know. He's, the thing with Matt is he's one of the players <laughs> who I'd expect to make a, a <laughs> stupid error that like someone at home be like, how could they possibly do that? I could be there, I could be a pro. But he also is gonna make like these brilliant next level like strategic lines that other people aren't gonna see. Mm-hmm. And you know, and that's kind of his strength, but also his weakness. Uh, so so pretty pretty solid group pretty solid group yeah I mean you know you look at this I think a lot of people on Twitter they were saying that they expected me to be the favorite there and uh, I think Seth Manfield was another another person in fact this week Seth and I are, are having a battle we're battling it out so you know it's uh, exciting but Brad Nelson someone who in an only constructed format you've got you've got to always watch out for because especially just standard. Brad is kind of a monster at best of three standard. He's he's, a, he's one of the guys in the world who understands sideboarding the best, and that's I think that's pretty high praise for him. So we look at the Pearl MPL division. There's Luis Salvado, the reigning Player of the Year. Javier Dominguez, the reigning World Champion. Uh, John Rolf, he's wicked smart. Uh, Shahar Shenhar, a back to back World Champion. Yeah, uh, Li Tian, Hall of Famer, five-time Pro Tour Top Eight competitor, mo- mo- known for more having a modern slant. I think he's he's been more successful in the in the modern format, and we actually haven't seen that much out of him lately. I think in terms of Magic success, so he'd be maybe my, my pick to if I had to had to pick someone to, to be at the bottom of the group, maybe it'd be Lee for that group. But he's he sometimes comes out with some sweet decks, and and he's really someone who meta gaming I think is his strong suit. Andrew Cuneo, the veteran, the oldest eSports e- e- rookie in, in, in the history of eSports. Uh, someone with a, a wonderful, dry sense of humor. He loves Control Decks. And probably going to see him playing that. Eric Froelich and Brian doing hot off uh, MC Top 8. Former world champion. Former world champion. Yeah, we got a lot of world champions in, the, in this group, right? BBD, Shahar Twice, and Javier. Uh, so... In this in the squad, I think Javier is has been continually proving himself one of the best, if not the best, right now. Uh, I would I would it would be tough to, to bet against him. I think, and he just puts in the work. Like him and Andrea Gucci have been working together, and for the past couple years, and it's paid dividends for both of them. You can really see, and, you know, and, and I think it's great when people put in the work, really get rewarded. You know, I'm. I'm from the opposite end of the
1: spectrum. I'm, I put in very little work and somehow <laughs> I get rewarded sometimes because I'm very lucky, but. I, again, it's awesome to hear you say that because Javier is someone I knew from when I started Man of the Pride because he played magically League and so did I and, and I remember maybe chatting with him a few times and to see him go from that to world champion to now someone well, I consider the best player in the world. Respect. <laughs> is and awesome. The thing about Javier, he's just—he's also so humble. He's just a
0: great guy. Like at the after the Mythic Invitational, I—I I got to have a big chat with him. We've always been friendly, but we kind of had a real heart-to-heart, and I got to know him a lot better. Mm-hmm. And he's just a total sweetheart, and he just has such a humble, great attitude towards the game. And I think that's hugely valuable to his, his success. Uh, John easy Rolfe, to cheer for. Yeah, easy to, to cheer. To, easy to cheer for. John Rolfe is someone who, I think, looking at these names, is someone who people wouldn't necessarily recognize as much. And he's a relative newcomer to the scene. But he's a smart guy. He We, we played a couple games of chess, and he managed to take one from me. So that's <laughs> that's not a, not an easy thing to do. I mean, I, I smushed him after that. But, you know, he's, he, he's a smart guy, and... He's a brewer. He, he he'll try things, and he's he's got a bit of the fire, you know. He's he got his law degree, and he, now he's just doing full-time magic, you know, taking taking some time off from trying to be a I don't know high-power lawyer of some kind. <laughs> uh, so. Would watch out for him. I think he's gonna he's gonna do well, though. I don't know. He would he wouldn't be my pick to win this this bracket. Again, it's a tough bracket. I think BBD, while he's had some success and limited at times, I think I think of him much more as a constructed player. Just like Brad, I think him and Brad will probably be working together. They often do. They live together, in fact. And they're in, being in separate divisions. There's no conflict of interest for them. So I expect BBD to be pretty well prepared. So if I had to pick a a second second person to, to be up there, UBD would be it. And then my my third pick, the the back to back champ, Shahar Shanhar. Okay. Someone who has really struggled with his limited game in the past few years. At one point I remember his, his win percentage at Pro Tours and Grand Prix in Less in than draft, 50? less than thirty three. <laughs> If he went one three in a draft pot, he was performing above expectation. <laughs> now that was rough. a rough, rough That's year rough. for sure. That is rough. And his results in general kind of suffered from because of that. You know, it's hard to do well if you're, you know, if you're doing poorly in, in the limited portion. But he's someone who puts up strong constructed finishes, and he often approaches matchups in ways that other people don't and don't understand why. Because he's kind of just a savant, really, of magic. Often he would make a play, and I can ask him, "Why did you make that play?" And he has no idea. He has no idea why he made that play. He just did it and it was right but he just did it so definitely my my kind of it's hard to call him a sleeper pick but <laughs> is alright so the Ruby division we got Reed Duke Ben Stark Kenny Yukihiro Jerry Thompson Lucas Esper-Bertude William Jensen Carlos Ramal and Yuya Watanabe in quotation marks uh, Yuya's matches, I think, have been postponed. I don't know what's going to happen with him. You know, right. We don't know. Maybe he'll be replaced. Maybe he'll play. Uh, maybe there just won't be an empty seat. Who knows? But there's some big names here. Uh, your boy Jerry. My, my boy Jerry, too. I, I, I love me some Jerry. Uh, he's also you know known for being a constructed guy more than a limited guy and tuning kind of the best stack into making it better. Uh, you definitely can't count on Jerry. Ben Stark, I said, you know, underrated for constructed, overrated for limited. Uh, if you're looking at this field and you're looking at Ben Stark, he's not a player I would expect to do particularly well. Uh, I, this, this is, a, this is, a, this is a, tough, a tough bracket, and Ben Stark's standard thing is to take a 48% deck that people don't really expect and take it to a Grand Prix where people are going to make mistakes because they don't know what's going on. That's going to be tough to do in this field, especially where you know people are going to get to see his deck list and kind of know what's know what's up. Uh, Reed Duke has just been crushing it on the on the PT or Mythic Championship series uh, lately, and if you look at his results, it, it's been a rare time where he's not in the top 32. His results are just incredibly consistent, and he's someone who really does put in the work. It's hard to root against him; because he's such a nice guy, and he's definitely one of the favorites here. But my pick is William Huey Jensen, someone who I think is one of the most brilliant minds in Magic. Uh-huh. He's really, really impressed me. I think he's a great player. Uh, he's a great guy. And he's been playing so much Magic lately because of streaming, and he's been loving it. And I think when Huey's on his game, he's almost unbeatable. You know, there's there's a point when he's, he finally kind of clicked and started coming back to Magic And he just top eighted like every Grand Prix play that year. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. yeah. I won three Grand Prix that year and I had like not close to this result. He had had, like eight Grand Prix top eights that year, eight in one year. You know, there's a GP cap of five GPs, so he had three top eights not counting. You know, most people (laughs) would would wish that they would have three top eights counting. Right. And he's just a stone
1: cold master and it's. It's hard to... You think he's he's not getting... You know, his name doesn't get mentioned as much anymore in, like, the top five all-time rankings. That's probably unfair. Yeah,
0: well, people care a lot about what have you done for me lately, and they care also a lot about results rather than necessarily skill. And Huey's someone who, like me, has at times been off it a little bit, you no know, not focusing as much. His his experience with Magic would maybe be, you know, watching other people play. He wouldn't be as focused, or his heart wouldn't be in it to the same level. And I think his, when his heart is in it, he's really, really good, and I think that's the case recently. And, you know, yeah. he put up a deep run a couple Pro Tours ago. I guess the first Mythic Championship, the one Autumn one. He was he was playing Mono Blue, and I think with, like, two or three rounds to go, you know, he, he had, like, maybe two ends ins or something. And... He ended up not getting there, but he's someone I would I'd for sure watch. So, out. so, so he's
1: in—he's likely in your top five all time. He might be, like no. certainly, certainly when
0: he's on his game, and it's—it's—it's hard—it's hard to to pick, you know, four of the people who are necessarily put there. But the prime. I, the thing is, is yeah, the it is important to know that I'm a relative newcomer to the pro scene. With this, the second top eight of mine, I now have. The pro points And the top 8 Eligibility for Hall of Fame But I still am not Eligible by the Time requirements You have to be 10 years since Your first pro point And it's gonna be At least two It's gonna be two More years or so Maybe even three Until I hit Hit that Depending on when They cut it off And so I didn't get to Experience Kai At his peak So I only got to experience current Kai who you know tweets about being O six 6 in his last couple of drafts <laughs> and 0-2 in this draft and, and redo clicking him down as already having lost his third round so it's it's hard to really put Kai up there for me because of that his results obviously are incredibly like and even talk to him he, he still understands the game he's still a very very smart guy but you know if I had to pick my top five who would it be well I'll tell you Yuya would have been knocking on the door previously but Right now, it's it's got you have to put John in there. Finkel's dominated era, every era of magic, and usually, without too much effort, he's kind of uh, his style is somewhat uh, somewhat emulated by me in some ways. Of <laughs> of you know, oh, it's there's two weeks before the pro tour, better better start testing. <laughs> uh, LSV, obviously, you know, for a while I thought he was overrated because he was American and people liked him. Uh, I've gotten the experience to play with him watch him play and you just see he just keeps putting up great results he's another person who when he's a bit off it he's had a couple off years where he was silver but when he's on it he's really on it and there's you know I think when we talked about Javier maybe being the best in the world right now Luis is is probably my other pick okay Uh, and then you know another Paulo who we'll get to I guess also in one of the later later groups he's he he might not be at his prime right now, but he's he's he, he's always really good. He also doesn't put in that much effort, and you know with the streaming, he's been playing more magic than normal. And he's just look at his results are incredible. And he did it coming from Brazil, where it's a lot harder, I think, to really get up and and become a huge magic success. So I've I've learned a lot from him from both his articles and when I finally kind of as a dream come true got to got to work with him. You know. Uh, I was a little starstruck at first. He was—he was kind of the player when I started, you know, playing competitively. Right. Uh, and then, you know, we 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 got Huey, what we mentioned, and then rounding out the top five, uh, Shoda is someone who you know I so think just was was for a long time. He's someone who I I've really respected a huge amount, uh, and you know, he, he's he's someone that the top players are, are scared to face. He's he's historically done really well at, like, the World Championship events where he's playing against the best of the best and he just plays so quickly and does his own thing. He's just... I... You know, I, there's been times where I wish I could speak Japanese just to be able to like, learn from him, you know? Because I just... I love learning from these great Magic players and talking to them and, and kind of finding out what they have to teach, their approach to Magic, how they view right. the game, and the, the fact that there's this language barrier there really, you know, prevents me from learning from these, these great Japanese players because often their English is not as good as, let's say, Javier English is not his first language, but he... He speaks it because I think it's, it's easier coming from a more similar language. Time to learn Japanese. <laughs> time to learn Japanese. So yeah, we okay. moving on to the, the, the Sapphire group, though. I, yeah. I guess I yeah, I, we broke it down. Should, we broke it down mostly, though. I'd say Lucas Berthude is uh, someone who he won a Pro Tour, but he's kind of a little bit of a sleeper pick, and okay. he manages to stay this competitive in Magic while still maintaining a full time job as a lawyer. Like, just imagine that. He works full-time as a lawyer and does all this MPL stuff. And he shows up and he puts in more work than so many people. And he writes these tournament reports and they're great, you know. I just see him after an event. He's just always on his laptop doing something, either writing his tournament report, you know, looking at deck lists or doing some of his real job, you know. And uh, I, I poked a little fun at him because when they posted stats for the MPL profiles, he had a 48% win rate in constructed. But... He's, he's, he has to take this his time to always test. He can't just play decks over and over again. So he's someone who, you know, could describe as the John Stern of Brazil, that in terms of his work ethic and his organization, uh, and he's someone I respect a lot. So Of oh, the people who might not be as well-known in, in that group. Sweet. So, yeah, Sapphire, Marcio Calvalho, Autumn Burchett, Andrea Mangucci, Mike Sigrist, Ray Sato, Paulo Vitor Rosa. John emmanuel Praz and Piotr Glogowski. Again, a fantastic group of people. This is the MPL. There's no easy matchups. Though, Ray Sato is probably one of the people in the MPL who I know the least about. Again, there's the language barrier there. So even someone like, you know, John emmanuel de Prat, well, he speaks French, but he also speaks English. And I've talked to him. I've played against him. I have a bit of an idea where he's at. But Ray Sato, I could not have picked him out of a crowd until I saw his picture. He, his his results that got him into the MPL were mostly at team grand prix and so I don't I haven't really gotten the chance to, to talk to him that much. I don't know how good he is. Maybe he's, you know, a stone cold master, but maybe he's not and often you you know people tend to give more value, more weight to the people who've been on, been on the scene for multiple years and he's kind of more of a newcomer in some ways, so if I had to pick someone to the finish at the bottom it would be him in terms of the top uh, Paul Vitor and Amadorosa, hard to I, I, he's he's just a, a great magic player and he said himself that if he's playing magic against weaker opposition he'd rather be playing limited he thinks he gets more of an edge there you look he's, he's he has one of the top amounts of draft trophies on the pro tour uh, in in terms of like number of three Os, but he says if he's playing against better players he'd rather play constructed now I don't know if that, that's an old quote I don't know if it applies to current standard Right. but he is playing against great players here and I think he's someone who you can really expect to get small edges because he thinks about how his opponent thinks and leads them down a pass, passageway you know to to find a play that he wants them to make and so I'm, I'm hoping to see some, some great matches from him uh, Marcio has been one of the top players in the world for a while. I know there's some people have s- commented about him being shady or something. Uh, all I've witnessed is top level play from him and he's known more as a limited guy. And that's where he focuses energy, but he's still just a great technical player. I wouldn't count him out. Uh, Autumn, they're, they're great. They want a MC recently, but Mono Blue might be on the downswing. So I don't know if, you know, Autumn has the, the love, experience of play with a lot of these other decks in the format. Uh, and we'll see how they do. In, you know, they're the, the newest member to the MPL, Andrea Mangucci, you know, we talked about him working with Javier. And he's he's someone who, when I worked with him, I thought he was good, but I wasn't super impressed. I didn't think he was a top-level pro. But I've been watching him over the last couple of years when he's kind of really dedicated himself to Magic. I think he's gotten a lot better, and he's someone who now, you know, before I would I'd be kind of happy to face him, and now that's not the case anymore. He's 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 always had my respect as a person, and now he he has it as a player too. And he's, his his win at the Mythic Invitational wasn't a fluke. No. Nope. strong uh, praise. Mike Sigrist, one of my my closest friends on the Pro Tour, who I, I love testing with, and he's also known as a limited guy, but he's just a great player. You know, he's he's. He's someone who, if this the format was limited, I would I would give a, a more of a bump to, but I, w- I would not count him out just because constructed and he he wants it he wants it uh, and he really cares about this MPL league. I'm talking to him, you know, because he's had a couple of uh, his past MCs have not gone how he hoped, you know. He missed a two the last one, the previous one he only got the the minimum pro points, which means no mythic points, so. He these the mythic points for grabs here. He wants them. He wants them, and he, and he's he's working to get them, and he really cares. So he's he's a scary competitor. Uh, I, I briefly mentioned John Emmanuel de Prat, someone who has kind of re, new, newcomer to the scene, but I've gotten the, the pleasure to play against him a couple times, or I guess the misfortune because he beat me both times. <laughs> and uh, he's he's a he's got skills. He's good. And uh, Pyotr Glogowski Canister. He's been streaming for a while, and he's got it. He's very entertaining. He's he's a troll. He's an enormous troll, but he's he's definitely also great. And I think he, he puts in a lot of work. He loves magic. You know, you'll find him on his off hours just jamming games. You know, and that's one of the advantages. You know, if you're a newcomer to the scene, you still you haven't been gr- grinded out by like playing games over and over again. It's still kind of a little fresh for you, and. That, that fire, you know, pushed him to get second place at the Invitational, and I think playing the only person playing mono-blue, I think, in, in that tournament. And we hope maybe we'll see some exciting decks for him, too. So we probably went
1: maybe too deep on, on these yeah. divisions, but... I think people are going to love listening to this. I don't know. You know I just want Ben Stark to reply to us in a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know him personally, but if he replied oh, yeah. to me in a tweet, that'd they're- be sweet, Ben. Oh, he, he's not listening. He's too busy petting his cats
0: and, and drafting while streaming. Though, you know, after I called him overrated, limited, they did the, the Twitch Rivals event. He went 15-1 in his three drafts. So, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. He, he showed. He showed. He, show, he showed. He showed the haters. So, but, but really, that you know, I'm I'm really excited about the MPL, and I'm excited about the the league because I think one of the things I love is playing high level magic against other great players and I love watching it too you know the uh, the world championships where I missed out is always incredibly painful because I wish I was there playing but I could at least watch and there's some sick sick games of magic happening and it's just a delight because you really get to learn a lot and you just get to to watch people make these brilliant plays and sometimes the game just becomes so intense and high stakes like it's just a delight obviously if you're not into magic you're not going to be that into it but as someone who's into magic very deeply it's just it's really exciting for me sometimes watching these games uh, and I don't I don't get as much of a chance as I'd like maybe to, to
1: watch coverage alright let's let's uh, we went longer in episode one and uh, hopefully you guys tweet share our goal is like let's let's double it this time not 500 let's let's hit 1k listeners and help us get there help us get there all right hashtag free Hain from this misery of, of having to hang out with KYT <laughs> hashtag a thousand matches <laughs> a thousand matches yeah thought <laughs> guys or, or not talk to you guys also but also you guys maybe later. next
0: time we'll get a table for three we maybe need a special guest and uh, you can you can vote for who that could be as long as long <laughs> as you think I can do a good imitation Hell, of their yeah. voice
1: that, that <laughs> all right Talk to you guys Or see you guys Or hear you guys Whatever I will probably
0: not hear Or see any (laughs) of you guys Goodbye
1: So we're back For an instant reaction Uh, Go ahead Alex
0: Well They just announced Like just now After we finished recording I just see my phone Somebody's tweeted Messaged me In fact Mike Sigris Member of the MPL, Has messaged me about Yuya Watanabe's Situation Which has been posted Banned for 30 months Removed from the MPL. Removed from the Hall of Fame What are your thoughts KYT I mean, I think
1: um, just hearing from people I respect, including you, feeling like he, he, he did cheat and, and likely cheated in the past to, to get him the reputation uh, that he has now, I I am not surprised by this result. I kind of expected it. It's sort of what happened to Saito, right? He was well, going Well, 30, have- 30 months
0: is a lot. That's more than... 18 months is, I think, more the normal ban that you, you get to see for people... So I guess some of the the savages who, like Jared Betcher, you know, who's stacking decks, he got a bit of, about three years or so. Uh, so 30 months is significant. It's not a slap on the wrist. Remember when Ray Sato was caught cheating at uh, a, a Grand Prix? He just got he got to stay in the MPL. He got kicked out of the Mythic Invitational, but he got to remain in the MPL. And that was definitely a lower level of cheating. First of all, it was at the Grand Prix level instead of the Pro Tour level, but also there. It was it was something that could be a miscommunication or a slip up, that it was definitely it definitely seems like it was cheating. I don't really agree with what what happened, but you know it feels to me that it either should have been cheating, in which case they get ba- he gets banned, or not cheating, in which case it doesn't get banned. But Yuya was from the pictures, you know the judges probably know more. More of course they have an investigation that they don't tell anybody about, but it seems pretty clear cut to me and. He didn't get a slap on the wrist, he got a he got a real a real ban and kicked out of the MPL, that was to be expected. A reasonable ban. Thought that was gonna happen. Hall of Fame though, that was kind of the, the biggest question mark other than you know the length of the ban for me. And you know, nobody's ever been kicked out of the Hall of Fame before. Saito, he wasn't actually inducted right. yet. Right. So however they do say in the Hall of Fame guidelines that you have to be an active member of the DCI, which means if you get banned or suspended in this case. That you know you can get kicked out of the Hall of Fame, and that's that's painful. I mean, I wonder what happens in 30 months if there's a Hall of Fame still for him to apply to. Is would he get back in? You know, he he's still been proclaiming his innocence. Is is that story going to change now that the verdict's in? Are we going to get to hear a story like often the cheaters write, like Fabrizio Anteri or, or Alex Berenini writing about you know their cheats, and they only write about the ones they were caught doing. You know, for UEI, they would be writing just about marking his sleeves for this event or something. Has he been doing this for years? We have no idea. Right. And, you know, will he admit to anything? Or Will he admit to the minimum? Will he admit to everything? I would personally, you know, I... Uh, by, so when someone cheats, I lose a lot of respect for them. But I gain some of that back when someone's completely honest about it and they admit to everything they've been doing, how long they've been doing it, etc. They give the full rundown. And... I don't think anybody's actually done that, really. Even, let's say, Dan Lanthe, our mutual friend, when he was caught, he finally admitted it after, you know, claiming various other things for a while, but he didn't admit that he'd been doing this for ages, or what he'd been doing. And from the video, it's pretty smooth. It's clear that it wasn't the first time he'd done something like that. And so, that makes me a, a little sad, but I... I I'm, I'm sad about the UU situation, but I think this is a pretty good resolution.
1: And... I look forward, I guess, to seeing who's, who's added to the MPL. Right. Um, it, w- it was interesting, like, after our episode where we talked about um, what we thought, like, the EV, the intentions, and S- Simon Gertzen uh, tweeted it about listening to, to you talk about it. And, and then after that, Side Games came out with their article, their piece, and they broke down, like, each step, what, like, I felt was not convincing, basically – figuring out oh it doesn't make sense because of this motivation and this motivation it's like okay it doesn't really convince me of anything when you word it like that like
0: yeah so. I mean Yuya barely made it into the MPL this year right he was like like myself was at the bottom and like me he also didn't attend the world championship this was the first year that Yuya didn't attend the world championships in the history of the new worlds so I can understand what could be going inside his head to so maybe you know maybe maybe he's been playing clean all these years but the pressure of this you know of him feeling that he's slipping or that other people are getting ahead and that he you know he has to stay in the NPL because if you get 33rd that's just a death sentence for you you know you can't play magic anymore competitively like professionally and yeah. I, I could I could definitely see that pressure getting to him you know I I talked to a lot of the people in the NPL and it's a lot of pressure uh I feel it too. Other than the fact that I'm just pretty nonchalant about it in general. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right, I think I think that's good and uh,
0: oh, that's more than good.
1: But yeah. Next episode. Ciao guys. <laughs>